We're in Matthew 21, and um, a lot in here, again, when you, when you go through the Gospels and you are preparing to teach it, it, you find out a whole lot more than, you could have read this dozens of times before, but if, I don't know if you've ever led a Bible study or a small group or something like that, when you prepare to teach it, it just seems, well, thank God for the Holy Spirit, seems like he opens up your eyes to some new nuggets of truth and some, just some profound uh, teachings that just you didn't know before. So that's what I found again as I go through Matthew 21. So today's message, picking it up from last week, is titled, Who's in Charge Here Anyway? <laughs> and uh, you'll find out why in a minute. But we're in Matthew 21. We got through the first half last week. And just some main points that we got through last week. Um, some things to, to remember. Jesus came into Jerusalem. It was the triumphal entry. He came, uh, spent the night in Bethpage with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Um, they went in, got a donkey. He went to, uh, actually, the Bethany, then to Bethpage, then to, through the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives, and then into Jerusalem. And people were worshiping him, shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. And um, what they wanted a king right then and there, Jesus, save. That's what Hosanna literally means. Lord, save now. They wanted a king. But the cross had to come before the kingdom. And what counts, as Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the priests, what counts is not promise, but performance. Not words, but obedience. So, and then we ended that um, study last week about or a good reminder to pray in faith according to the will of God. Remember we talked about delighting ourselves in the Lord and then he will give you the desires of your heart, not delighting yourselves so you can get whatever you want to spend on your own pleasures, but according to the will of God. So now we read, um, oh actually there's a couple of other points I wanted to, to just refresh our memories. Um, the crowd, remember, that was shouting Hosanna, I don't know if you missed last week, within days, they flipped. And we go, wow, why would they shout Hosanna and worship Jesus as he came into town? And then within days, they were shouting, not everybody, but most of them were shouting, crucify him. It's like, what? It's interesting that that, that changed, the mob changed. But Jesus entered the holy city through the eastern gate, and which we referred to, we didn't teach on it last week, but we mentioned this back in March when we were talking about the resurrection. Very significant. We'll get to that more in a minute. But he entered through the eastern gate, fulfilled prophecies from Daniel, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, on his way to the temple. Um, before we get to Matthew 21 today, a set of scriptures I want to allude to. Scripture teaches that when the king returns, he will once again go from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and enter through that eastern gate that you see there, you go, wow, it's cemented. Well, Muslim conquerors did that because they know our holy book. They know the Messiah would, would not be able to get through there. Then they put a, <laughs> a cemetery in front of it. A holy man will never go that way because he'll be defiled. Well, that's the way Jesus is going to return. The only gate in Jerusalem that's cemented and sealed right now, it's been for like 500 years or something like that, but that's the eastern gate which Jesus entered on what we know as Palm Sunday, when they were all shouting, Hosanna! 
Well, he's going to blast through that when he returns. So very interesting. We'll get to that a little bit more later. Um, five centuries before the birth of Christ, the prophet Daniel predicted that event when Jesus came in last week. We talked about it, um, the triumphal entry. Uh, Daniel 9.25, if you weren't here. So after the suffering, torture, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, a, real, a nugget of truth, an extremely important event took place. So after 40 days on earth, after Jesus' resurrection and appearances to his disciples and his followers and eating with them and, and teaching them, uh, right before he ascended, actually as he ascended to the Father, there was an interaction that his followers at, at that time had with angels that we forget about. They give a little clue about Jesus' return. So a few instructions. Bring up Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, and we'll go through this quickly. Uh, now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him from their sight, out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So there's a little clue about Jesus' return. Now, uh, Christ came the first time to seek and save the lost, to show us the way to the Father, to destroy the works of the devil, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He became the perfect sacrifice and atoned for the sins of the people. When he returns the next time to judge and set up his kingdom, um, Zechariah 14.4 gives us that little clue we were talking about a minute ago. It says, and in that day, Zechariah 14.4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. In March we studied about the resurrection, the real hope that we have, and the evidence uh, for the resurrection. At the return of Christ, he will enter through into the city through that now cemented eastern gate. You saw a picture of a minute ago. Ezekiel 43 one through four, and then we get into Matthew. This is a little setup here. Um, it says, afterward, this is written about 593 BC. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Verse four, and the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. We didn't have time to get into that last week. We're talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus coming to Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, as was prophesied. But now, open up to Matthew 21. We'll, we are now in verse 23. Jesus is back into the temple the day after now, the day after he just you know, threw out the money changers and rebuked them. Um, I have the New King James here. Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. Now he came into the temple. The chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing. 
If you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they, they reasoned among themselves and said, hmm, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, hmm, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second son and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. It dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, Well, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them, but they sought to lay hands on him. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So the chief priests and elders confronted God, <laughs> Jesus, as he, was, as he was teaching. They interrupted him, basically, in the temple. In the visit the day before, remember, Jesus drove out the money changers and merchants from the temple courts. Now he returned there to teach. So this shows something very simple, that he was unafraid of the religious leaders who interrupted him. He was unafraid. He knew what he had to do. And they say, but what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? So the religious leaders raised the question of Jesus' authority. Why? 
They just were looking for an excuse to arrest him. We might understand their question this way. Where did you go to seminary or who ordained you for ministry? Jesus. What, how did he answer? The baptism of John, where was it from? So this is all about a question of authority. And in Matthew 28, 18, what did Jesus say? Matthew 28, 18, it says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So he, asked, he answered their question with a question. And what did they say? We don't know. Well, they answered after calculating and saying, all right, if we say this, that's going to happen. If we say this, that's going to happen. So they weren't interested in answering honestly, just cleverly. What will give us uh, better standing with the people, right? So they took the coward's way out and said, we don't know. This showed they're more interested in the, the opinions of men rather than the will of God. They could not say of men of John's baptism because they were cowards, but they would not say it was of heaven because they were hypocrites. So one thing to remember here, and we see this today, there are none so blind as those who refuse to see. Really, if you think about it, here's Jesus, God in the flesh in front of them. They were not fit to be in conversation with him um, concerning Christ's authority, right? Who's in charge here anyway? Um, men of such a disposition could not be convinced of the truth. And we find that today, don't we? Um, I learned uh, years ago, I don't do this anymore, but years ago, not to get into back and forths on social media, on Facebook, trying to convince someone of the truth. Because, I mean, not that it's still not an opportunity to plant seeds, but oftentimes what I find is uh, most people have their minds made up, and that's probably in text, black and white, on the internet. It's probably not the best way to convince them, but you can still present the truth and then leave it at God's hand. Then it's, then it's the Holy Spirit. It's up to the Holy Spirit. Um, so now Jesus shares a parable. Verse 28, the parable of the two sons. This teaching from Jesus represents two kinds of people with two different characters, right? Some who perform better than they promise and others who promise, big promises, more than they perform or better than they perform. So he continued right after talking about that, the baptism of, of John, it keeps going right directly into, but what do you think? How about, in other words, he said, well, how about this? You can't answer this about the baptism of, of John. How about this? A man had two sons, and then he said, son, go to work in my vineyard. So the father in the parable spoke to both individuals separately. But the invitation the Father gave in this parable, the invitation was the same, wasn't it? Two different people, two different characters, same invitation. So one answered, I will not go. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The first son refused to work later, well, better late than ever. <laughs> um, he spoke wrong but did right. But the second son said he would go. And even he threw a little bit of respect in there. I will go, sir. Um, but he didn't go. So he didn't do what he said he would do. Um, the gospel call to work in the vineyard requires obedience. And in another place, at least one time in the, the gospels, Jesus pointed out the Pharisees, the scribes, when he called them hypocrites, and he told his followers, his disciples, do what they say, but not what they do. 
So there are many churchgoers today, people who attend church sitting on a Sunday morning that align with the second son. And most admit the word of God is true. Most Christians, um, they intend to get serious about their faith someday. Oh, I'm just really busy right now taking care of life and everything else, but I'll get serious about my faith someday. How many some days are you going to have? Um, so they, they intend to, good intentions, right? Some talk about doing the Father's work, doing this. Maybe, yeah, we'll go do, do this, work at, at, work at the pantry or going to share the gospel with someone or going to a prayer meeting. They talk about it, but they don't do it. Others, uh, they keep up the external appearance of religion. How often have we seen that? But their heart is not right with God. So that's a heart issue. They're trying to project on the outside, hey, I'm spiritual. But what did, again, what did Jesus say? You will know them by their fruit. And they think that words and promises are enough for God. I don't know, maybe they're trying to convince themselves of that. Um, so their hearts are so set upon their own fields rather than God's field or God's vineyard. Um, so spiritual things don't interest them as much. So we talked about the fig tree last week and Jesus cursing the fig tree and uh, that leaves appeared, but there was no fruit on it. And that's how it was a, a symbol of Israel. Often in the Bible when it talks about a vineyard or a fig tree, that's, that's Israel. Um, a reminder that we must abide in Christ. Remember we talked about John 15 briefly, to bear good fruit. And it's dangerous. You're lying to the Holy Spirit when you say, God, I'm going to do this, or you're telling people one thing and you're not really living up to it. There's enough hypocrisy. And we've all been hypocrites. Welcome. Come on in. We, we can, <laughs> the church is full of them. We can use a couple more. But don't stay, <laughs> don't stay in that hypocrisy. You know, let your actions follow your words. Um, but that's an, that's an excuse atheists or others use. I'm not going to go to church. It's just full of hypocrites. So come, come on, we have room for one more. Um, so it's dangerous to play with the mercy of God. And yet here, the Jewish leaders failed to realize they were in their answer. We, we don't know. They were sealing their own fate, rejecting the Messiah. According to the very prophets that they taught in the temple, according to the very prophets, prophets that they revere and profess to believe, according to those scriptures, here's the Messiah. And they said, nope. We want it our way. It's interesting, I thought about if Jesus could be thinking about Isaiah, I'm sorry, about Israel, um, Exodus 24, when it said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Remember the people respond that way? Oh yeah, we will obey. All that the Lord said, we will do. We will obey. But history reveals that they rebelled. And boy, what a reputation. They got a reputation as a stiff-necked, rebellious people. But they said, of course, we will obey. So back to the parable. Which of the two did the will of his father? Um, the point is this, what matters is living for God, not just saying the right words. Simple point, applicable to our lives as well today. So the religious leaders were great at talking the righteous talk, but their unrepentant hearts, remember they were indignant when they were shouting, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the, lamb, in the name of the Lord. And they said to Jesus, rebuke your, dis your disciples. And he said, if, if they are quiet, the stones will cry out. So what really must have, I, I can only imagine, I wish we had the video of their reaction. You know, when Jesus said the re repentant sinners would enter the kingdom before them. So let's read verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Wow! John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots. So he's saying the worst of sinners are better than you guys. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Whew. And, and then he said, after they repented, you did not relent. You still didn't believe. After they repented. D.A. Carson said this. He said, the shock value of Jesus' statement can only be appreciated when the low esteem in which the tax collectors were held is taken into account. Not to mention the prostitutes, right? Then you can understand Jesus' rebuke. Um, he reproves them for their contempt of John's baptism which for fear of the people, they were not willing to own. And he said, tax collectors, you know how they were looked at in those days, right? The worst. And prostitutes. Jesus said, you know, they repented. And Jesus, all of a sudden, they repented. He elevates them as an example to the most educated and religious people in the world at that time, right? And he said, these people are an example because they repented. You can just imagine. So, a lesson here. A hypocrite is often harder to convince or convert than a gross sinner with a horrific background. And how many of you understand that, that maybe had an issue with, with uh, an addiction or just a horrible background where we sure did live as sinners, didn't we? But when we repented, we had a lot to be forgiven from. So you understand exactly this idea that the, the religious have a hard time, and it's pride. Pride comes before a fall. But pride prevents us from submitting to God and surrendering and saying, I am a sinner. So we're, we're going right into verses 33 through 41 now. There's three, kind of four sections here in the second part of chapter 21. So he continues with another parable, the parable of the vineyard and the wicked servants. So Jesus said, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. The landowner, of course, is God who planted the vineyard and set a hedge around it. It reminded me of that phrase when we often pray for people for a hedge of protection. Lord God, set a hedge of protection around him or her. That's what God did to this vineyard. He planted the vineyard and set a hedge around it. So it had God's blessing. He planted it, had his blessing and his protection. And the Old Testament often used the picture of a vineyard, not only the fig tree, which we talked about last week, but a picture of a vineyard to speak of Israel. And this parable traced God's ways with Israel in the past, the, re the rejection of his messengers. The servants in the parable were, of course, the prophets, Jehovah's representatives. And they will respect my son. 
God knew and Jesus knew what had to be done, the sacrifice. He knew he was going to be crucified. But it's interesting that in the parable, the owner said, they will respect my son. And the chief priests and the elders plotted to kill the father's son, who was sent to all people but the rebellious leaders of Israel. And what they did to the son, um, never did sin appear more awful than in the mockery, the abuse, and the torture, and the crucifixion of the son of Jesus Christ. They caught him, just like in the parable, they caught Jesus, so to speak, in the Garden of Gethsemane. They cast him out of their council in the hall of Caiaphas. He was led out outside the gate of Jerusalem, and they killed him at Calvary. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Jesus also, that, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate, outside Jerusalem. How will God respond? They answered Jesus and declared their own condemnation. He will destroy those wicked men miserably. Wow. <laughs> the chief priests and the elders understood what Jesus was saying and what the wicked servants deserved. Those who rebel against their master this way deserve judgment. And what happened in 70 AD, which Jesus predicted, remember he said, when they were gazing up at the magnificent stones in the beautiful temple, he said, not one stone will, will stay on top. How do you say that? Not, not one stone will be left upon another. Every stone will come down in this temple. And they're looking at this massive structure, this beautiful and massive structure that took years to build. And Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. That happened in 70 AD when the Romans came in and conquered Jerusalem. They deserved judgment, and they got it. So he said, um, they will lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their, in their seasons. The leaders of Israel were so corrupt that God was announcing transfer of ownership, transfer of leadership to others in this parable. And that's exactly what happened. The kingdom and all the spiritual advantages entrusted to Israel would now be given to the church. Romans 11.11 11 says, through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And verse 42 through 46, Jesus keeps going. He warns the religious leaders and he quotes Psalm 118, the messianic scriptures. He said, Jesus said to them, have you, remember last week he did the same thing? Have you never read the scriptures? <laughs> Again, he said, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected, this alludes to his crucifixion, has become the chief cornerstone. This alludes to his resurrection and restoration. This manner of speaking to the chief priests and elders, haven't you ever read <laughs> what you profess to believe, they were saying? These guys, the leading theologians of the day, um, 
I don't know. I, I just have, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to, to hear that exchange. But Jesus quoted Psalm 118 to remind them, they knew the scriptures, that their rejection of him said more about their guilt and coming judgment than it said about Jesus himself. He's still the chief cornerstone in fulfilling the great messianic Psalm 118. Clearly, clearly, Jesus claimed to be the rejected stone that God appointed. Clearly, he did that in the first half of Matthew 21 and here in the second half as well. He also, he's the stone in Isaiah 8 that people stumble over. He's the foundation stone, the precious cornerstone of Isaiah 28, and the stone of Daniel 2, which we'll get to in a minute, that destroys the world in rebellion to God. So, how did he explain it? He said, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Jesus warned the religious leaders. He warned them and warned them and warned them. If they continued in their rejection of God and the Messiah, they could expect that God would pass the leadership of his work in the vineyard, so to speak, onto others. And he embraced the Gentiles. So let's look at Peter chapter 1. You can turn there if you want. We've got the scriptures up on the screen, but um, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, I should say. Really quickly... 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4, it says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture... Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means put, be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed, but you, church, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvel marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9. Another nation, a people of God derived from all nations, Jew and Gentile. But notice, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. Jesus is a stumbling stone in this world today. I mean, he's an offense, a rock of offense. People stumble over him. But interesting, you have to stumble over Jesus to get into hell. You have to stumble over his sacrifice, his free offer, the universal offer for whoever will believe, whosoever believes in him. You have to stumble over that stone to go to hell. On whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The Jews stumbled over Jesus and were broken. But the choice before the religious leaders is the choice before every one of us, and every person really today, it's the same choice. 
believe, receive, or reject him. It's better to be broken in humble surrender than it is to be completely broken in judgment. No? <laughs> Far better. So when Jesus said, this stone, Christ is a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over for unbelievers. Now, this is a fascinating portion of scripture which we don't have time to get into, but Daniel chapter 2 talks about this stone. I'm sure Pastor Landon has taught on this in the past. Uh, Daniel pictured Jesus as a great stone which falls on the kingdoms of the world and crushes them. God's kingdom ruled by Messiah is the final rule never to be replaced. Daniel 2, 44 and 45, it states, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall, break, it, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. So we're talking about an eternal kingdom. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces, it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel, the prophet, interpreted the dream. His dream was about the different kingdoms that would take power. And it showed, I don't have a picture of it, but it showed uh, the, the head, the breastplate, you know, the, the, the thighs and the feet. That's, that's what it, it would talk about, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And God will know what will come to pass. So without hands, it says, the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. That means the Messiah comes from God and is not of human origin. The mountain, it talks about here, cut out of the mountain, pictures God's all-transcending government that looms over weak earthly powers. I think I have a a graphic on here, if you go to the next slide. There it is. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This was his statue in Daniel chapter 2. This, if you look at this and remember this picture, you can read Daniel 2 and go, wow. That is, so the gold stands for the Babylonian Empire. Silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. Bronze, the Greek Empire. Iron, the Roman Empire. Iron and clay, modern powers or a revived Rome. And see the rock, Jesus Christ, the rock that's going to just crush everything, all these kingdoms, temporary kingdoms, man's kingdoms, the rock, Jesus, is an eternal kingdom. So it gives you a good... Go to the next slide. Just, just a brief. All previous kingdoms destroyed by the stone cut without hands. A new kingdom will never be destroyed. It's talking about the coming of the Lord and his kingdom. So back to this parable now. And Jesus is talking about the stone, so we now clearly understand, and they understood, Jesus is saying he's this re stone that, that they rejected. That's, that's what the Pharisees are hearing, the, the cornerstone. They sought to lay hands on him. How did they respond? So in the first half of chapter uh, 21 of Matthew, when Jesus came in, remember they were indignant. That was their response. Now they wanted to kill him. Instead of repenting, the religious leaders responded with anger. 
One reason, a guilty conscience needs no accuser. Uh, there was no doubt that they knew, and the scripture tells us, we don't have to even assume, scripture tells us they knew that Jesus was teaching this parable about them and because of them, their hypocrisy, their rejection of the Messiah. So now, bringing it to today, what a warning that this chapter should be to our own country with all the blessings. Remember, Israel had the blessings and spiritual privileges and the hedge of protection. What a blessing America had when we started out. Not that we were perfect, but what a blessing, God's blessing on this land and on the people. And now the church, who so many have rejected the truth I'm not talking about unbelievers here. I'm talking about many churches. They're rejecting the truth. Some suppressing the truth. Whew. Judgment is coming. We want to make sure we're on the right side. God's side. The truth. But this should be a warning to us. We're seeing the sacrifice of Jesus mocked, minimized. In America, his deity questioned, of course. Now, there are more and more Christians who don't even believe in absolute truth or moral absolutes. And fewer are believing that scripture is inerrant. And it's astounding to me from, if you only look at where we started, I understand human nature and the progression of man. I understand that. But from where we started as a country and the church in America, we are not unlike those scribes and, and Pharisees and teachers of the law that seem to be doing all the, uh, the appearances of spiritual things on the outside. But in our hearts, we've rejected the truth. And they're rejecting God's word. It's being attacked, mocked. What was once in our public schools has been banned. And there's a void, and you've got to fill that void with something, right? You remove the truth. You remove God. Something has to fill the void. And what's in public schools now? Anything goes. Churches are now, some, uh, some schools are now teaching um, meditation. Uh, just subtle forms of Buddhism. They're teaching that. They're, they're um, uh, teaching Islam. Some schools, middle schools, they're memorizing the Shahada, the five pillars of Islam. Can you imagine? No, come here and, and let's memorize some scripture in public schools. Can you imagine today? Why should we look at that and go, oh, come on, no way. That's what they used to do in public schools, in the universities in America. They taught putting out pastors and theologians. Harvard University, John Harvard. That's what they started. Their, their logo, and I know I'm getting off on a little little sidebar here. Harvard University, their logo, it was a shield with three things in it. Truth for Christ and the church. Truth for Christ and the church. And that is 1636, the establishment of Harvard. So they were teaching theology. And you had to memorize, some, some of you had to memorize portions of John in Latin at Harvard. So what is the logo today? One word. They removed Christ and they removed the church. One word, truth, veritas. 
in the Harvard University logo. Well, let me tell you this, Veritas, truth. Whose truth do you suppose they're teaching once you remove God, once you remove Christ and the church? You know what they're teaching now. You can register when you go to Harvard as, I think they have 50 genders now. You can register that. Uh, so they're, they're, you know what they're teaching now in most universities. And that's Harvard. Oh, Lord, we need help. We have rejected your word and your truth. So Jesus previously warned the church also. So the, another application is Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Let me just read this real quick. The seven churches of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. Uh, to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2. He said, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. I believe uh, five out of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 got a harsh rebuke. Another church that resembles America, Laodicea, the lukewarm church. But in this one, it's interesting, he said, I, repent or I'll remove your lampstand. What is a lampstand? That represents, of course, light. It rep represents influence. The church at that time had influence in their culture, kind of like um, uh, the church in America did for about 150 years. <laughs> there was influence. The church had godly influence. You could talk about scripture. You could pray in public schools. You could go out and a lot of companies were, were closed on Sundays and on and on and on. We were honoring God in America. God bless America. But now you know what we better be praying? God save America. Sure, you can pray for God to bless America, but that's like saying, God, will you bless our sin? The capital of pornography... Hollywood, 60 million abortions. God save America. So repent or I'll remove your lampstand. The church's light in America and influence. I, I can't say that it's removed completely because there is a remnant and we're in touch with a lot of them. These solid churches, these solid pastors who are doing it right and who are teaching the word of truth accurately and that are preaching the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God, there is a remnant who is doing it, and people are going out and being salt and light, and they're being persecuted and discriminated against. Some are being fired from their jobs for sharing scripture with a coworker. That's happening in America. We're not talking about Canada. We're not talking about Europe, because it's been there for a while. But in America... So we've got a little bit of light left. God, I don't think, has removed our lampstand yet. So the lampstand represents influence or power. We have or had prominence in America. But remember, unless you repent and receive and believe Jesus, the lesson from today, they rejected the cornerstone. They rejected him. Jesus, and he made that clear in his teaching. There's no doubt Jesus claimed and taught because he was God. He claimed to be God. He taught, you rejected me, the, the Messiah, the chief cornerstone. So takeaways from today, a handful of bullet points here. I'm just, 
it's sobering. What, what I just shared was not in my notes, but it's sobering just to think about the church. I understand Hollywood, media, government, and the education system. I understand secularism in our nation. But when we start talking about the church in America, that should sober us up quick. And you know what other, some churches are teaching and some of the apostasy that we've been seeing. And that landowner, the vineyard owner, will find others who are faithful to do his work if we don't. So Jesus will enter Jerusalem once again through the eastern gate. Many Christians today intend to get serious about God someday. And this is just one point today to remember. Don't wait. Don't wait to examine your heart, examine your faith. Don't wait to um, recommit your life to God. Don't wait to get serious about spiritual things. And I'll say, you know what, I, I had a sister that died when she was 24. My sister and my brother-in-law, they, they got killed in an, in an accident. Um, my wife, Rosanna, is now in Toronto, Canada, at her dad's funeral. Um, it, you could come at 24, it could come at 90 years old. It could come at 17. You know, don't wait to get serious and do business with God. Don't, care, don't worry about anybody else. Don't care what this world thinks. It's you and God. And on that day, you will stand before him. Your friends won't be there. Your followers on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever else, <laughs> they won't care. They won't be there. They'll be irrelevant. It'll be, it'll be between you and God. Don't assume that you've got another decade or two of life. Someday. Don't wait till someday. Jesus called out hypocrisy. The religious leaders were like uh, flowery words with little fruit, and they had not truly submitted themselves to God. Let's not be like those religious leaders that were not fully submitted to God. Also, this is a good one to remember for those who like to have a little banter on social media, a hypocrite is often harder to convince and convert than a gross sinner sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> the vineyard owner, God, has given all the spiritual advantages entrusted to Israel to the church. How are we being responsible? How are we using those advantages? The freedom we have, the religious freedom in America we have, how are we using that? Well, other countries, you know what's happening in other countries, persecuted nations, because of the gospel. We can be broken in surrender before God or broken in judgment. I would rather be broken in surrender before him. And finally, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and we are living stones. Work and watch and pray while the church still has some light and influence. In your sphere of influence, work and watch and pray. It's between you and God. So we're done. We made it through chapter 21 <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> Can you believe that? How many verses? 43 verses? Whew. I mean, we could have taken a six-week study on this, but we, we condensed it because um, I, I agree with Pastor Landon. We do want to get through Matthew by the end of the year. 
And we're not going to rush it, though. We're going to bring out the truths from, from the Word of God. So let's pray and close. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you make it so clear. Um, and you never left us wondering. You never left people at that time. And when you were walking the earth before you ascended to heaven, that you were and are the Messiah. And you are the chief cornerstone. We are built on you, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are a people who are living stones built on you to do the work that you called us to do. Help us, God. Give us wisdom and help us be about your business and do what you've called us to do as a church. And that means individually, Father. Speak to each one of our hearts. Show us, Lord. Show us the way. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for enlightening us and, and teaching us uh, your word. And Father, we, we thank you for the opportunities we have and the great privileges we have as people of God who are saved, who, who know the hope that we have. And we ask that you would prepare hearts around us in our individual lives, our friends, maybe family members who don't believe. They don't have the hope. Their only hope is in this life and God. Help us to remember those who have been believers for a long time. Help us to remember how empty that is and how lonely and how, I don't know, I, I just don't understand. They must be fearful in a way because they don't know what's to come, but we do. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that we know the truth and that you've saved us. And we thank you that we believe. I lift up the, the rest of this day to you and ask that you would just continue to speak to us, God. Uh, guide us as we uh, start a new week tomorrow and um, just show us how we can be better disciples for you, better living stones, and that we can use that influence, that lampstand that we have, that place um, in our daily lives. We praise you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, and for just giving us a little glimpse of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.